and hearing the Dhamma frequently taught. These are the highest blessings. So, I've been thinking about contentment these days. Santuti, contentment. Santuti Chakatanyuta. I haven't been trying to be trying to think about contentment and gratitude. As often it's recommended to meditate upon contentment and gratitude. Uh, Meditations on contentment and gratitude are so good for easing pain, uh, so good for our resilience, so good for our mental and physical healthiness, really well for our psychological well-being you've come to be anxious or depressed especially or gotten into difficult kinds of negative habits or patterns then meditating on gratitude meditating on um, uh, appreciation for what there is appreciation for what we do have seeing the good in the things that we do have these are so useful to cultivate to really try to see even one thing in one day that we can we can be grateful for and appreciate and if our minds get very dark and very difficult then it can be hard to see that there's even one bright spot in in a given day it can just all seem low and heavy and dark and and even to have a single bright spot can be like such a shift and an illumination and so opening up that possibility uh, in the mind for there being real appreciation uh, and gratitude, then that actually comes close even, can start to come close to joy, and next to joy, if there's gratitude and joy, it can actually open up the possibility for happiness. If there's, uh, if there are feelings of happiness, regular feelings of happiness, enough of them, then one can even start to feel perhaps a little bit content. 
uh, or maybe not. <laughs> uh, gratitude doesn't always come together with, uh, with contentment. The level or the kind of uh, gratitude that is associated with contentment and comes together with contentment uh, and is associated also with a kind of uh, humility of heart and uh, respectfulness. Respectfulness is a kind of awesomeness, uh, not not awfulness. I mean, full of awe, but <laughs> not, not not awful, not terrible, um, and uh, a kind of awesomeness. Um, it's like a real depth of uh, of appreciation for things, and then humility. Then is also this kind of humility, also a kind of close to a kind of awe. Our pride, our conceit is not bearing down over top of everything or either bearing down on top of it or feeling crushed by it or this kind of thing, but it's like like the opposite, like the mind is able to go all the way down to the bottom and that's very clean and clear and pure and then also it can extend everywhere. So it's not, not pushing anything down or not being pushed down by anything. And then there's a kind of a... Uh, beautiful kind of humility in that. It's the absence of conceit in either of its faces, either of, of uh, arrogance, the face of arrogance, that's the pushing the things down, or the, the face of conceit, uh, that's self-depreciation that's being pushed down, feeling like being pushed down by the things. In fact, it's just being pushed down by the own mind, by one's own mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny because we think it's something else that's on the other end and, and then I'm, it's either something else underneath me and I'm on top of that or is it, or is it, uh, what is it, I'm underneath and there's something else on top of me. We don't realize that's exactly, that's just my own mind that's there, <laughs> that's, that's doing that, that's, that's pushing, pushing down or, you know, pushing one way or another, and that's because of a kind of conceit, a view of self and other that's not open and clear and, and nice and healthy and balanced, but an un unhealthy one that's always kind of pushing and pulling and tugging and against and, you know, can't just be open and, and at ease. And so that absence of that kind of ego, that absence of that kind of conceit that's doing that all the time, and leads to an opening of love, opening of compassion, opening to experience and what the experience is, and then there's kind of an amazement in what the experience actually is in the absence of such, the activities of such conceit, which can you know, seem like it comes in and just oppresses everything somehow. And so the, the absence of that, then, this is a kind of humility, I think, that... Uh, I'm talking about this absence of oppression or oppressiveness or oppressive, uh, oppressing anything, um, not the humility of, of thinking I'm so low, I'm so bad, I'm so terrible, and being, uh, uh, what is it, repressed or oppressed or this kind of thing, not that, the antithesis of that. So this is the humility of the saints who are able to rise in joy and touch both the earth and the heavens and everything in between. Yes, this kind of beautiful humility that loves all forms of life from the 
highest to the lowest that can dance with the angels as well as the as well as the butterflies and the tiny creatures that crawl in and on the earth and and those who are in the most pain and suffering and all of that and like you like me and that loving kind of open heart like that so this is the kind of what is it beatitude of the saints a beautiful beautiful life beautiful mind beautiful heart of the saints in the absence of conceit so respectfulness and uh, respectfulness and humility that's respectful both of those very great and wonderful ones as well as respectful of our friends as well as respectful of those who are in terrible suffering and undergoing hardship and are confused and are in difficulty and and all all this kind of thing so all inclusive there uh, even whatever we would think is the lowest form of life, whether we think that's the, the low-life person on the street or whether we think that's grubs uh, in the <laughs> who's, who's grubbing in the trash can or who's, who's grubbing in the, underneath the tarp in the backyard <laughs> in, the, in the earth or this kind of thing. All loving all of them, with compassion and appreciation for all of them, all forms of life these kinds of very beautiful uh, states of mind here and uh, then in this verse this is also associated with uh, hearing the Dhamma frequently taught so how interesting is that that there should be an association here someone might think oh that's just been added on to the end just to make it make it something nice but there's there's some kind of association there in this verse that is it Kalena Dhamma Sawanam? Kalena Dhamma Sawanam. Yes. So, uh, hearing the Dhamma at a good, good time, the right time. Yes. So, here in in English, in what we chant, then we have this translated as frequently. We also have Kalena with regards Dhamma in the, in the next verse as well and it says sharing often the words of Dhamma I think Kalena may mean we have here in the more literal Pali translation in the Bhavana Society translation book we have to hear the Dhamma at the right time to discuss the Dhamma at the right time so hearing the Dhamma at the right time is then associated with these uh, these beautiful qualities that we were just talking about in the Bhavana Society book. It says, to be reverent and humble, content and grateful, and hearing the Dhamma at the right time. This is the highest blessing. This is the blessing supreme. But what enables us to be able to hear the Dhamma at the right time? What, uh, or, or timely? Um, what is it that makes that possible? I was thinking this is also kind of quality of opening of the heart and of uh, of humility or of reverence to be able to even be you know, willing or able to listen, to be able to hear, to be able to be perceptive of Dhamma and whether that Dhamma is in the words of the Sutta or in the words of our Dhamma friend or whether that Dhamma is just in however anyone is expressing the truthfulness of things as they are at any moment or anything, even 
not just the simple things like um, sunrise and sunset is also in a way uh, a teaching of the a teaching of the Dhamma it can be seen to be an expression of the Dhamma in so many ways it could be a teacher of the cyclic nature of things or it could be a teaching on rise and fall it could be a teaching on impermanence uh, could be a teaching on non-self um, could be a teaching in, in so very many ways if we are in such a such a beautiful state of mind as to be open and receptive and perceptive and then to see and feel and know everything as being Dhamma, everything as being true, everything as being expressive of of truthfulness all the time. Even someone is confused and they're saying something that's not true. Also this is a Dhamma teaching. This is a teaching on on suffering and, and on confusion and on how that distorts the mind and on the pain that that causes. This is a teaching on, on also on dukkha, even on non-self, also on anicca, because it so really doesn't actually belong to the person. Uh, it is very much pain and suffering. It's arising out of conditions. You know, all of these truths of the Dhamma are there, there and very much present in what's happening. Even with the, you know, disappearance of one condition and the disappearance of the effect or the bringing in of another wholesome condition and a shifting and a changing, even so much as just being present together and how much of a benefit that can be or having, being able to have kindness and compassion and understanding uh, rather than just a negative judgment and rejection, whether that's uh, being applied inwardly or outwardly, still just in the realm of our mind, in the realm of uh, our perception, in the realm of fabrications. These Dhamma teachings on the elements, on the aggregates, going on in everything that we're experiencing all the time right now. So. This kind of opening of heart, these kinds of qualities of heart, I find that they can make us uh, receptive and perceptive to the Dhamma teaching that is there. Whether that's from the words in a book, or the words of teachers, or listening to, uh, uh, is it maybe listening to the MP3 or MP4, uh, or whether that's just reflecting uh, purely on, on our own experience and what is actually happening, whether we're working with Dhammanusati, uh, the fourth base for establishing mindfulness, uh, the fourth foundation. Yes, and that may be Dhamma reflection Dhamma teaching in absolutely anything and everything and to be cultivated by the wise for themselves. So I've been feeling a great deal of contentment these days and just noticing oh, feelings of contentment arising, feeling really happy to be here right now. Felt very happy to be down few days ago in the Bay Area and to be with everyone and with the circumstances there and then I feel so happy to come back and, and be back here and, 
and just really, really like a beautiful kind of contentment. I don't wish for things to be any different than they actually are. I feel so appreciative of how they actually are. I don't, it's not like I'm thinking, oh, everything is going to be better when we get our schedule fixed up or uh, everything's going to be much better when our friend here is, has her head is shaved and she's in, in robes or everything's going to be much better when my monastic companion here has uh, uh, deepened her meditation practice further and attained more in the Dhammas and everything's going to be much better or definitely going to be lots better when that's so for myself or when we have a permanent place or these kinds of things, or even the other side of it, the mind that might say, no, climate change is happening, how can you be content? <laughs> there are people killing each other on the other side of the world, and maybe even in, who knows, might be in one of the towns around here also, there are people who are getting divorced, and there are people who are the parents who are unhappy with their children and children who are unhappy with their parents and spouses who are unhappy with each other and uh, uh, people who are feeling grouchy at their dog because they just chewed up their shoes and, and all of these things are definitely going on. There's an amazing mass of discontentment and dissatisfaction and disease and and suffering that's uh, probably going on around the world and I don't even know if the angels are perfectly content. I'm not sure. And what if there are hell beings? Then definitely there's a whole enormity of terrible, terrible suffering going on there. I can think about all that and think, oh, like maybe I think about climate change, very, very big. And does climate change and, and the actuality that our, our climate has been changing and is changing does that mean that I can't be happy? Does that mean that I can't, that I'm not entitled or not able to feel this, this contentment, this happiness, that that's not okay? Or the fact that I'm not an arahanta yet, does that mean that I shouldn't be able to feel ease or, or contentment or, or beautifulness or, or happiness? And if so, why not? I think about the cankers, the asawas, sometimes called cankers. Uh, the festering nature of the asawas as discontent, as disease, underlying grouchiness, grumpiness, or even worse than that, feeling of acidity or of, uh, of a real painfulness like deeply something is wrong something is wrong I just know it's wrong and, and there's this grinding or grouching or grumping or or a singeing or searing or uh, what is it sense of blackness like the pit of charcoal with the festering the coals underneath inside there or this kind of thing like kind of quality of the asavas, whether it's there's a deep longing for particular sensual pleasures that's not being satisfied and it's the tanha, the craving for such that's burning or, uh, or the burning is even in the consuming of these things whilst underlying 
underlying knowing really deeply it's not permanent, it's not mine, it's not going to be able to to last. And this is just this feeding, temporary feeding of craving, but then it's always craving something else, craving something else, craving something else. That festering in the power Pawatanha, we Pawatanha, always thinking needs to be something else, needs to be something different, developing, developing, trying to get better, becoming better by different, 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 further developing, further developing, further developing. So, I don't mean that we shouldn't do good things. Be happy to do good things. But this kind of contentment is so like not not obstructive of that, but not not being always tipped forward, able to settle deeply in oneself and be really present with what is. And in a way, it's like even if nothing else comes into being or changes in any way, that's okay whether it does or doesn't. The things are naturally changing, I know. It doesn't require me to do anything for that to be so. In fact, it's just just the law of nature. But even if they don't become any different in any way, fine, fine, fine with that. Happy enough with this body, happy enough with these robes, happy enough with the food that was offered for lunch today, uh, happy enough with this place, happy enough with my companions. You may, you might think, oh, that's because you have, uh, what is it, such nice robes <laughs> and such nice companions and such a nice place to be. <laughs> Uh, whereas if that weren't so nice, maybe you wouldn't be feeling like this. But, you know, the mind that's discontent, no matter how the things are, no matter who the companions are, still something discontent, there might be better companions, you know. I think really if I were to imagine it, and I would try to try to imagine my most perfect companions, they would definitely be different than this. There's the, there's the canker for you, the canker sore, and it's, it's underlying festering. And if you don't look at it, you might not realize it's there, but if you look at it, if you really think about it, could it be any better than this? And then see what you actually think, how it could be better, what could be better. Maybe there could be a more fantastic teacher here. Maybe the Buddha could be here. But what if the Buddha was here and he blamed me for something and I was one of the ones he was scolding and he didn't like me? Or what if it turned out I didn't like how the Buddha actually is? <laughs> he might not be as I imagine. Who knows? I might be one of those, those monks that he's scolding in the Vinaya or something. I don't know. Or, uh, or what if he wants to be staying? What if he wants to be living in a way that's uncomfortable for me. Uh, and then I have to give up my comforts and my ease to be hanging around together with him because his way of wishing to live and abide is, is different than what I'm comfortable with. <laughs> How the imagination can go with these things if we actually look at what's, at what's there. But I don't feel like that. I don't. 
And I thought, oh, I'm happy with this. I don't care whether we ever get another place or not. I, I don't care whether, whether I have any different companions or not. I don't care whether uh, really any part of it. That's okay. I'm happy with it as it is. You might say, but what about your practice? You're not an Arahanta yet. Aren't you supposed to feel dissatisfied? Aren't you supposed to be like urging yourself on to strive more, to get better, and to realize awakening? But to do that, really, is it that pushing forward outside of ourself to something different, to something other, to some other place, to some other time, to some other state that's outside of and different than this very state of body and mind? What is the experience of the Arahants? They have human bodies like this. If they were monastics, they might be wearing robes like this. They might be sitting in a hall like this. They might have even had the same thing that I had for lunch. I don't know whether their bodies would be perfectly healthy or not. They could have a body like this. I don't know whether they would be supported by a support foundation or not. Perhaps they could have a support foundation, like even like our support foundation supporting them. They might have monastic companions like this. There might be aspirants, as we have present here. Can I think about any circumstance that would actually be different for them, other than their state of mind? What might their state of mind be like? What do we know of an Arahant state of mind? We think they abide in a state of mind that's the highest of blessings. That this state is the state of highest of blessings. Would they be content? Would they be humble? Would they be grateful? Would they have appreciation for the Dhamma? For reflecting on Dhamma, for teaching the Dhamma? What would this be? Contemplating like this, you might even suddenly feel like, oh, this process happens right here in my own body and mind. In such a physical circumstance, with such mental faculties as are present now, with the ending of delusion, the clearing and arising of right view, applying right view to all dhammas of body and mind,
purification of intention. Intentions of harmlessness, benevolence, renunciation. Are these things that can be opened up and come to be present right here, right now in this body and mind? And seeing that doesn't take a striving forward or a coming outside of myself pushing into something else, far in the distance, becoming anything else. That's not what that takes. Right effort. Contemplating whether actions are skillful or unskillful, beneficial or not, to give rise to wholesome and liberating actions, states of mind. That needs to arise right here and right now, out of this very mind ground, within this very body and mind, right here and right now. That brings me back into myself, completely back into myself. And opens up a possibility that is the antithesis of that cankering and festering and leaning outwards into something else that's striving for something else. No, that brings me right back into myself, right back to what's present, right here, and now, and knowing the goodness of this Dhamma, knowing its efficacy, knowing how it works, knowing that working with it has its effects, there's gladness in that. There's gratitude for this. There's a contentment to just work with this. I think about, we talk about Cows being content chewing their cud. One chew, another chew, another chew. Not knowing about anything else. Just happy to be chew, chew, chew on what they're working with right now. Then knowing how the Dhamma works, knowing how the path works, to be mindful, to be working with right effort. Just here, just now, in this body and mind. And that festering and craving for something else seems to disappear right there. Gladness to be just with this. Trust, knowing how it works well. Happy to be just with this. Just with the things as they are. Not wishing or longing for anything else. Happy and glad to be with this. in a kind of trust, in a kind of faith, it's confidence based upon seeing and knowing how the path works, that it's present here and now, and in being rightly engaged with that. One's energies of body and mind are being applied well and couldn't be any better than that. 
What more could one ask for? What more could one want? There's happiness just with this. So, now I think about reflecting back over the years. When I see someone who's a monastic life aspirant, sometimes then I reflect back in time to when I was a monastic life aspirant. Now, when I was a monastic life aspirant, then I very much aspired to get to the next stage. So, then I very much wanted, there was the time when then I, I wanted to go into white. I wanted to go into the white robes, even like before my hair was cut off, then I wanted to cut, wanted to cut off the hair, and uh, then I wanted to be free of all these possessions and things like this. And, and then I, I look forward to the next stage. And then there is the time that I was in Anagarika. If I look back now, I think, actually, I had a really nice Anagarika life. I had a good Anagarika life. I look back and I think, actually, I don't have any, I don't have any complaints with my Anagarika life. It was actually a really good, really good Anagarika life. And uh, I practiced sincerely, together with other people who were practicing, teachers, teachings. So able to practice with that, growing, and, and um, I was happy to be striving and all of that. And yet at that time, I remember, my mind was very much in getting to the next, getting to the next. I thought I would like to go into the Kasaya Jira, into the be able to wear the saffron robe. And I wish to be able to become a novice. I thought that's my my next step, my next goal. I want to do what I can to be able to be moving towards that goal. And then I thought I'm going to have attained something. When, when I get that, that's my next, my thing to be attaining and then things are going to be somehow, I don't know how I imagine that that's going to be better or that's going to be great or what, what that's going to be, but you know, it's kind of in front of me and like, like the, what is it, the rabbit and the carrot. No, what the carrot? Donkey, donkey. Donkey, sorry. Don't <laughs> Why not rabbit? <laughs> because you're right. You have, you're holding the carrot in front of the donkey. You can do that with the rabbit also. But you can't write the... <laughs> <laughs> or you could lure the carrot, the rabbit, I think. So, there we go. So, yes, whether, whether donkey or whether rabbit <laughs> with the carrot. And that lure is there, an eye on the lure. And because of the eye on the lure then I feel like at the time, I don't know if I was able to fully appreciate what it was to be an Anagarika then. And that's because, looking back, that's because of the Asawa, the Bahasawa. There's, there's this, this canker of craving for another becoming, a further becoming, and thinking that that was better. And, it's very much there in growing up. You get older, you get to the next grade and next grade, and then the goal is to grow up, right? And uh, and then as soon as you're 
I don't know exactly how old you are when you're grown up, but then there's always the next year and there's the next stage. And you just keep going, going, going until then the next stage is you're dead and you've passed away. <laughs> yeah, uh, whenever, whenever that might be. But then I remember thinking back. So then, then I became a novice. And uh, so then there's the situation of what it is to be a novice. I had wanted to have a teacher. I was able to find a teacher. The situation of serving, serving the teacher, being told how to do everything, working very hard, always being corrected by everybody, and uh, trying to study and memorize and learn texts and teachings and need to prepare for an exam and trying to take the exam and memorize these things and all that. and. It's, you know, to get to the next stage. I'm going to be able to graduate from being in the position of, of serving my teacher, and I'm going to, going to, well, I thought, I'm going to be able to become fully ordained as a bhikkhuni, and then eventually I'm going to become independent. And then, eventually, that did happen. Then I looked back, and I thought, Actually, being a novice is so wonderful. It is so wonderful. There's so many opportunities in that situation. There's so many things that you can do as a novice. And I also had looked back on Anagarika like that after becoming a novice. And I saw, like I, I realized opportunities in the situation that I somehow I wasn't really able to fully cognize at the time. And I realized afterwards what a great position. It's somehow in between layperson and monastic, and you know, there's the monastic element to it, it's there, but then also I'm able to connect with and be an intermediary in a way that like you can't in any other position. And I could really only see that after I stepped out of the position. And then I was in this other stage where there are all these things that then I can't do anymore and I'm being perceived differently and I'm in a different role and, and all of that. And so only, I could only really see it on looking back. So I could see on looking back, oh, that's the opportunity that somehow I didn't completely fully recognize and wasn't fully appreciative of and aware of at the time. Meanwhile, also I was looking ahead and thinking, but then there's this next, this other. It is, <laughs> it's my goal uh, to be attained. And so I had that happen in successive stages. And there was a point where I actually recognized that. And you're looking back and, okay, now I'm fully ordained and now I have a different discipline. And I'm in a different circumstance. I can do many things that I couldn't before, but then also I lost the lovely things about being in the position that I was previously. So simple just to do what you're told and, you know, just be mindful cleaning something and just be memorizing something and the teacher and your elder Dhamma sisters have all the responsibility and and to be able to be near your teacher and just, just for just for doing some small simple service, be able to have so much contact with them and be able to observe them and and learn from them, and what kind of benefit 
that is, what kind of blessing one receives from that that one doesn't realize at the time or might not really realize at the time. I mean, people would say it, but then there's the grouchiness or grumpiness in the mind. It's like, and that's the asawa, the canker in there. That's somehow not going to let you really be fully with it and benefit it because, oh, yeah, that's right, but. <laughs> and weighing it against the, it's like these things that people are saying are good about this, then that mind is weighing what's perceiving to be the detriment about it against it and doesn't quite let the good in it outweigh the detriment. It's like allowing the detriment to somehow, yeah, right, <laughs> they're just saying that, but it's actually not so, you know, if you're there, it's actually not so great. <laughs> the, that, the canker, the canker in there. And that's looking back and looking forward, but doesn't allow to actually really fully appreciate where one is at completely, wholly and fully, and fully benefit from it in the present, not just the imagination of it looking back. Actually, one can gain from the past by reviewing it. One can. I've experienced that. Somehow, it's even in the time, at the time we were there, at the time our mind blocked us from perceiving that benefit, but then later, looking back, somehow our view opens, and then in the present, then we're able to receive the benefit of what happened in the past. That we couldn't then, but we can, we can now. I've had that happen, but that's very much because of an opening of the mind in the present that's allowing the benefit from the past experience then to become metabolized and able to become full for you know, for what it was. Yeah. So I feel happy now. I don't think I have any other next stage that I'm looking for that's the next thing to be attaining. in terms of any kind of, you know, material things or life stages or or any anything like that. Nothing nothing more than this. Nothing more than just being with the practice and what what this is now. I don't have any imagination of that it's it's something else that's going to be more perfect or more more right or better or that's the the next thing to be attained after which imaginarily things are going to be what things are going to be what still going to just be with myself in the present with this body and mind unless I'm dead in which case if there's any ongoing of being and becoming, then still going to just be with whatever kind of body and mind. <laughs> whether that might be a subtle angel's body or whether that might be a human body or whether that might be an animal body or whatever whatever that might be. I don't so much imagine the animal body actually. Um, but still, still it would be just that. 
I think for one who learns and practices with the Brahma Viharas, they can experience the most fantastic loveliness and wonderfulness of the highest of the heavenly realms even as a human being. Don't have to go and become an angel for that. Or an angel or a deva or a brahma. Don't even have to. I don't know that there's anything of any state of being that can provide anything that this situation now as it is can't provide. Do you know of anything? So realizing this I feel like helps to come to be really, really centered and grounded in the present actuality. And with that then it's possible to be, to have a santuti, to have contentment, and to realize, yes, this is a deep and amazing blessing, kind of happiness. Able to be happy, not just with the things that made me happy in the past, like the happiness from a lovely meditation, or the happiness from being with beloved teacher, the happiness from being out in nature, the happiness from all these things combined together, uh, or several of them combined together. Those things in past, I would feel happiness for those things. Well, happiness of listening to the Dhamma well taught. Sometimes I felt, oh, this almost like my heart is just going to blow up because of the kind of expansiveness of happiness and joy that can, can come from getting something really nice in, in the Dhamma. But still, it's kind of like a wonderful kind of consuming of experience. And in this case, I feel like this kind of contentment, happiness arising out of contentment, is different than that. It's not based in the, the consuming of the experience. It's something that's underneath, deeper, or more penetrative, or more, uh, how can I say it, more, more pervasive. It has more, uh, more depth perhaps even a sense of the happiness of unconditionality. Not related to a requirement of anything being any particular way. And I feel like this is a nice thing. This is a good thing. Nothing to be attached to. Nothing to try to try to further produce but good thing santuti uh, surprising kind of contentment it seems like it's just a natural result or natural fruit or natural benefit of the path that just comes as fruits right ripen in their own right time, uh, 
from applying oneself well according to the directions that are given. Applying oneself well, applying oneself regularly uh, to the path, that this is just something that happens without striving for it, without trying to trying to get it to something that just happens by itself as as a result, very very naturally and properly, like uh, fruits becoming ripe and then just when they're ready to fall, just fall. And, like just cause and effect, not something made or forced or uh, or anything like that, but a result. Oh, happy for the benefits of the path, happy for the results that do come, even unexpectedly, not knowing what they are, not needing to fabricate them not needing to feel like anything. Not, not something that comes from the stretching out of the mind and trying to get that thing and then grabbing onto it and, and eating it as one might think is the thing to do for getting fruit. Uh, like to stretch out your hand and grab it and, and then be eating it. But this is different, different. Like the story of sitting down underneath the tree and then yeah, and the, the fruit just falls falls in your lap or something. And you're happy with that. So I'm feeling lots of appreciation for what comes from this path in its different stages. Appreciation looking back on the past for what for what was, for what has been, and for everything that's come to be. And, uh, and for what is right now, without needing the future to be anything, in a way that allows things also to cause and effect can continue, change can continue, just everything as, as it is, naturally and properly, according to nature. Shanti. Sadhu, sadhu, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.